You're listening to Liturgies of Life, the fifth season of Enacting the Kingdom. Here you'll be joining me and Father Jeffrey as we consider the wider implications of our everyday rituals. From shopping to social media to sports and to the so-called work-life balance, let's explore how the mundane aspects of our daily existence truly become liturgies of life. Where is your treasure? Actually, the actual title is Where Your Treasure Is, which is the beginning. Uh, you know, that's part of a quote that Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, another way of putting that might be something like, well, show me your bank account and show me you know, your transaction list for the month and I'll tell you where your loyalties lie. Um, might be another way of putting that. Um, and today, uh, welcome all our listeners. We're continuing in our season on the liturgies of life. And I think a good place to start, Father Jeffrey, is you know, in our introductory episode, we ended with an extended quote from James K. Smith about the shopping mall. And hopefully our listeners picked up maybe halfway through that indeed he was talking about a shopping mall as one of the great religious experiences of our age. And perhaps that's a good place to start where your treasure is, you know, where, you know, if you look at your transaction list for the month, you know, where that can tell you where your loyalties lie. And for many of us, our loyalty lies with something like the mall or consumerism as a way of um, expressing uh, who we are as human beings. So maybe, uh, Father Jeffrey, I'll turn it over to you. That's probably a good place to start is unpacking that a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, I think to some extent, um, you know, people might sort of assume, okay, well, this is kind of an interesting, you know, if not somewhat tongue in cheek, um, and irreverent, um, you know, metaphor in some way, you know, okay, that's interesting. Now, now let's move on. But the whole point of that kind of case study and presenting it in the way, you know, that he does is to, is to show something. It's really, really important, right? So, the introduction said about making something that's that's very familiar seem a little bit strange, you know. Again, because it's to recognize it for for what it really is, which is in fact truly religious and truly therefore uh, formative, right? Of of human beings, because we we started also in the introductory episode to talk about how you know it's what we it's the stories that we we belong to, the stories that have specific ends that we we practice and and we build habits and unconscious you know behaviors you know to live towards that these this is where we're fun- fundamentally living as human beings and fundamentally you know being formed right and so we inhabit spaces like the shopping mall not in any sort of way neutrally right there are these kind of concrete material practices that are part of the experience of living in the world today, which have the same function that liturgy does or ought to, right? In terms of, of forming us and, and, and being this kind of crucible in which our desires are being formed and educated, right? And so, you know, yeah, indeed, where our treasure is, there is our heart. Well, that treasure isn't, you know, it's one thing to kind of just sort of, okay, well, where have I spent my money? And that I think would reveal an awful lot for for most of us. But but where have we spent our time? You know, where what are even those, you know, nine out of 10 or 95 out of 100 
activities in my day that I'm not even thinking about, you know, and spending time doing the the rituals, the practices, the habits that I have, you know, what are they directed towards and, and where have they been formed and what is the end and purpose and what is the good life envisaged by, you know, somebody who, who practice think, things in, in that way. And so we participate in something like the ritual and religious life of the shopping mall, um, you know, without ever thinking of it as something which has fundamentally shaped our hearts, right? That, that's where our treasure is. That's where our hearts are at. And then we think, you know, as I said, our brains, we're Christians and we, we spend just enough time in our lives, an hour or so a week on a Sunday morning, you know, and maybe a little bit of lip service elsewhere to, to living towards that. And yet most of our lives we're, we're living towards, you know, something else. So that the mall is a religious institution because it's a liturgical institution. It's a pedagogical institution because it's a formative institution. And, and to, and to see it that way is, it's not just a metaphor. It's, it is truly that, and it helps us to see what's at stake in its practices, right? right. right? Um, and it's not just, um, you know, because it's not a matter of saying, okay, well, if I think of it differently, you know, it won't be that. It's not, it, the, the mall is not saying, you know, here is the good life and, and think about it in these terms and then and do this. It's happening at this deep, embodied, heart-centered desire level that um, is so powerful, right? And and the, the, the thing that I think we also need to be looking at here is that the shopping mall is doing this better than most churches, right? That most churches are kind of living in the, as long as we've got people's minds and worldviews kind of attended to, um, you know, we can address them with a homily, we can address them with good books and good theology, we can even give them theology degrees at, at schools of theology. Um, that's the job done. Right. Meanwhile, the thing that's working at this much deeper and more formative and more powerful level is the the liturgy and mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. the pedagogy of the the shopping mall, and and that's the the really scary thing. And yeah. there's almost like a better theological anthropology, you know, amongst the advertisers of Madison Avenue, right, than there is in the the pastors and theologians and leaders of the church who have kind of just assumed over that kind of whole modern period that, oh, well, it's about thinking. Think the right way, and that will lead to, you know, right behaviors, and, 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 and that's job done. Whereas it's this more powerful liturgy and formation that's taking place that we need to attend to. If you are getting value from this podcast, please consider writing a short, positive five-star review on your podcast app. And even though we are social media free, there is still a place you can keep up to date with Enacting the Kingdom. You can join the email list by going to enactingthekingdom.com. I was once interacting with a pastor who was not the head of a megachurch, but he was one of the pastors at a megachurch. And we were in an Orthodox church and he was talking about like, oh, like, look at all this symbolism. There's so much symbolism in here. Like, isn't it beautiful? There's so much symbolism. And I said, well, you know, I, you know, your church has a lot of symbolism too, right? And in my mind is exactly this topic that we're talking about, right? Um, like w- the way that you design your space is trying to communicate something. But I said, oh, y- you know, your church has a lot of symbolism too. And he goes, no, no, it doesn't have any symbolism. We try and look like a shopping mall. <laughs> and and it just sort of like, wow, he doesn't understand that a shopping mall knows more, even more than churches on how to uh, employ and uh, employ uh, symbolism. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like the, the 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 people who design those shopping malls know how to uh, give you an embodied experience. Whereas there are church leaders who lead mega churches who don't understand that that's how humans work. Um, yeah, it, it's just so interesting that you know that it, it's almost as if you're saying, Father Jeffrey, and let me know if I'm characterizing this correctly, that the church and and the shopping mall are both trying to give you an embodied experience and often the shopping mall just does it better. That's right. I mean, it, it wasn't always the case. I mean, I think if you look at the ancient church, even if you even look at the, the Orthodox liturgy, it's designed to work this way, right? It's designed to affect us at the, and, and form us at the, the very deepest level. It's holistic, effective, embodied anthropology, you know, at its core. But what's happened is our society has subverted the liturgy because we've subverted our anthropology, right? We've assumed this thinking person is the dominant, you know, configuration and understanding of a human human being, right? That if we address ideas and thoughts and we get our thoughts right, that somehow we're, we're formed, you know, in the, in the right thing. In fact, you know, what was, you know, the, the great thing about the term orthodox is it has this kind of duality and ambivalence almost, right? I mean, it, it can mean right ideas, right thinking, right doctrine. And I think a lot of people have, have taken it to mean that these days. But more fundamentally, it means right glory, right worship, right? This kind of holistic embodied thing. And so we've almost, we've turned from orthodoxy to orthodoxy, right? And, and, and not in a good way. And, um, and that's the problem, right? And so the genius of the mall religion is that actually has a better anthropology than most churches, including the Orthodox church these days. Not that we don't have it within our tradition. We've just lost sight of it. And we've assumed that catechism is about giving people ideas, right? Teaching them rational propositions and, and, and beliefs. We've even, we've taken that term belief and faith and turned that into a list of things to think about, as opposed to that deep heart centered love and trust. And then, you know, consequently the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says about where your treasure is, there is your heart. I mean, none of that makes any sense to us, right? Sure. It's, what we think about, that's what really matters, right? And we don't even make any sense of this heart-centered, this gut-centered, right? Uh, which is what ultimately this Greek kardia or the, the Hebrew lev, right? The, the word for heart. It's, it's not heart in the, because we've turned heart into this romantic, affective, uh, emotional thing, right? Just in the, in the kind of, um, anti-intellectual, you know, uh, reaction of romanticism and so forth. Oh, you know, you're led by your heart means, you know, you're not thinking and that sort of thing. No, no, for, for the biblical anthropology that's at stake here, the heart is the very center of the human being, right? It's, it's, it's our, it's our will. It's our, it's our, our place of knowledge of one another, personal, deep personal knowledge of God, of the other and so forth. It's, it's our guts. And so that's where we need to be you know, paying attention to in our lives. And it's out of that, that most of what we do in our lives, you know, there's um, a psychologist, a social psychologist a few years ago, Timothy Wilson wrote a book called Strangers to Ourselves, right? And he, you know, points this out that 95% of what we do in a given day is just non-conscious or automatic, 
right? There, it's just all of our behaviors that have become second nature. That's not driven by our thoughts. That's driven by our guts, by our cardia, our, our, our lev, our this 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 thing which Jesus says reveals. You know, so ninety five percent of what we do reveals where our treasure is. And that's pretty scary if we're not even thinking, you know, about all of that. And we think that what will save us is that 5% where we're living in our heads and consciously doing things. Well, the mall knows this and all these other cultural liturgies that are very formative, very powerful in our lives that are coercing and co-opting our desires and hearts. They know this. The church somehow forgot this and has just been paying attention to homo sapiens uh, rather than homo adorans, which is what we truly are worshiping mm. and desiring, loving beings, not not thinking beings principally. Not that thinking is unimportant, right? But it has, uh, it has to be marshaled and, and put in its right place as the, the kind of outflow, one of the things that our hearts can form is our thinking, right? So we need to be renewed in our hearts to begin with. If you're not a patron of Enacting the Kingdom, you're only getting half a podcast. This show only exists because of an active community of people just like you over on Patreon. When you become a patron, you'll get additional episodes, live streams, and our ever-growing backlog of episodes, 66 at the time of this recording. And as we're social media free, Patreon is the only place to engage with us and others about these episodes. Go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to join the growing community. It really seems like one of the problems that we are trying to address with this season with enacting the kingdom is the fact that there seem to be these institutions, or you might even call them these churches or these religions or these movements or these organizations that seem to get humans more than the church does. And, and I think what you're getting at, Father Jeffrey, is in an ultimate sense, no. Like the church has the ultimate understanding of what a human being is and has the tools in which to form that human being towards that goal, right? When we look at an icon of Christ, that's what we, that's it right? Like that is our goal. That's our telos. That's our purpose. And the church provides us with the tools in which to orient ourselves that way. Not just the 5% of our brain, but the 95% of all of who we are, right? So the church has it. But for some reason, there's been a maybe not a big emphasis on that. And then these other institutions have really captured that and are, and are sort of capturing the hearts and the unconscious behaviors of people in our society. And what, what I thought I would do right now uh, is because in this season we're going to go through various different kinds of things, and so what I do, what I want to do now is point out maybe four different what we might call the liturgies of life, four different kinds of liturgies, and um, we're going to go through these in detail in subsequent episodes. But I thought in broad strokes we could just kind of lay them all out here. I have four, Father Jeffrey. If you have more that come to mind, or if our listeners, um, if you have more that come to mind. Actually, the only way you can communicate with us is through Patreon. So make sure you go become a patron and then you can uh, write to us. But here, here they are. Here's what I think are the four great liturgies of our age. Sports, entertainment, health, and consumerism. Sports, entertainment, health, and consumerism. And uh, yeah, Father Jeffrey, do you have any uh, more to add to that list before I sort of pick out what I mean by those? Uh, I mean, I can think of another way of, of kind of organizing it, you know, uh, sure. because there was some kind of fundamental idols 
that that lie behind those. But ultimately, I think those are kind of the ways, almost religiously, that the 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 idols get you know get organized. I mean, it, and it, it, this is because human beings have never actually changed. If you go back, say three thousand years, and you were just visiting some city town in the ancient near east and there you found the the pagan temples you would find the gods of everything from sex and power and money and and those kinds of things and and, and i think you know most people in the 21st century would say oh my goodness how much more you know sophisticated we are today look at those you know backwards people they thought you know that they, they had sex gods and they practiced sex rituals in their temples and and so forth oh how much more enlightened you know we are today but in this kind of clever masking of of religious practice and liturgical practice that those things that you mentioned are, are embedded those very idols, right? So I don't think that what I've just said is different from what you're saying. It's just, it's maybe cleverly cloaked by things like the entertainment industry, right? Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Or, or, or sports or, or indeed health and, and in wrapped up into health is this whole kind of obsession, you know, with, with sexual fulfillment and, and so forth. Um, you know, let alone, you know, where, what we find in terms of the, 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 the sex dimension of things like sports and entertainment and so forth. So, so essentially it's all the same things you'd find in that you know, pantheon of pagan gods and, and spirits and everything in an ancient temple, they're all there. There's, they're still there. These, these are still the fundamental things that preoccupy and 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 drive our, our loves and desires today in the 21st century. But, you know, there are these layers of sophistication through which, you know, we can just sort of look down our, our noses at, at ancient peoples and, and, and congratulate ourselves on how sophisticated we are. But actually, it's the same thing. You know, human beings have never actually moved on, right? Just ask any murder detective, you know, it's always the same <laughs> motives that are ultimately in play uh, in, in any kind of uh, murder mystery. So, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so let's run with what you have. And I, I do welcome, you know, listeners um, contributing, you know, the, you know, their thoughts. I mean, ultimately, Everything is liturgical, so you could you could look at nearly anything. Right, right. But yeah, but definitely these are talking some broad, broad yeah. strokes. Yeah, yeah. and like yeah. things like, for example, things like sex. Right, like that is a huge. Uh, how our culture approaches human sexual behavior and all that kind of stuff is a huge issue and could be its own in this category, but it could also be subsumed under health or under mm -hmm. entertainment or under consumerism, right? Yeah, or under politics, sure. right? Um, politics is one that I just added here because I think that's definitely another one of these uh, religions. Um, for example, sports I have, as, I have as one, but sports could be put under entertainment. It could be put under health. It could be put under consumerism. That being said, I do think sports is big enough to have its own, uh, you know, denomination. Um, <laughs> so if we want to put it that way. Um, so, yeah. So I added politics, Father Jeffrey. So, you know, sports, entertainment, health, consumerism, and politics. And, and there's, there's one thing, looking at this list right now, there's one thing that's jumping out at me. And it's the fact that all of these things, in, in terms of broad strokes, have... In, baked into their story, this, this idea of progress or going to the next thing, right? So sports always being progressing to be better and better. Entertainment always getting uh, moving further into the story. Or if you're watching Netflix, right? It's always, okay, that episode ends. You want to get to the next one. And then you move on to the next show. And there's that sort of movement forward. Uh, health, there's those goals that you might set for yourself, right? I want to weigh such and such amount of uh, weight 
um, in my new workout plan. Um, consumerism, that, that's sort of an obvious one is if I buy that next thing, I will be complete, right? My, my, I will finally reach theosis if I buy that red sweater that I can wear. Uh, and, and politics, I think, is a classic one as well. Um, you know, the grass is always greener. Whoever's in office, that's the most hated person in the country at the time. Um, so, yeah, I, what, do you, what do you make of that? Having that, you know, me observing sort of that progress aspect in all these. Yeah, it's certainly one of the dominant kind of underlying goals of a lot of the stories of our modern era. In fact, you could argue this is the modern idea, the idea of progress, right? The idea that if we just marshal the right things and resources and people and ideas and practices, that things will get better, right? Um, and it's not certainly a, a very dominant idea in the pre-modern era where you're talking about any, you know, kind of society or there are various views of the kind of cyclical, you know, nature, you know, of things. Um, you know, I even think of the, one of the first, you know, quote unquote, modern historians was a, an Arab in North Africa in the, in the late middle ages, Ibn Khaldun. And, and he had this view of history that, you know, things, things rise and things fall. And it's just always going to be that way. There is no progress ultimately, right? Um, things come and they go. And um, that was how, you know, most people, you know, tended to think of things. There's like a, a directionality uh, to, to Judeo-Christian, if I can put it that way, you know, to Jewish and, and to, to, to Christian view of, of history, which is not cyclical, but it's not a human-based progress model, right? It's an eschatological model in which the the one who put all things into being will put things right. And we can cooperate with that, we can work towards that, but it's hardly a progress-driven, you know, model, although a kind of twisted version of that may in fact be responsible for Western Europe's grasping at the the modern enlightenment you know, idea of progress, take God out of the picture and, you know, we can take care of the rest and, and we'll just move on. And so our whole, I mean, our consumer society is driven by this, you know, bigger and better, newer all the time, you know, this idea of replacement, you know, the, the outdated, um, you can hardly buy things these days that don't, you know, expire, you know, at a certain point in time. And, and, and the whole, of our economy is actually based on progress in the sense that you have to keep buying again and again and again, right? You're on this treadmill um, that ultimately, if you, again, to take Jamie Smith's invitation to be a, a kind of detached, neutral, Martian, whatever, observer of, of Earth in the 21st century, you would scarcely be able to actually detect progress, right? 20th century, after all of this progress, gave us the most violent and destructive wars that we've ever seen. So, so much for, you know, all of those individual rights and freedoms and protections of the human person that, that came to the fore from the 18th century, you know, onwards. So, so progress writ large is the modern idea. Progress needs to be Unmasked, there needs to be apocalyptic, you know, kind of unveiling of that as being a, a kind of false telos, right? It's it, like I, I was saying before. I mean, it's not often that you get the actual equal opposite of you know evil being the you know just a complete 
180 degrees from, from the good. The way it works is that it's a counterfeit, right? So progress plays on something that's true. And that is this idea from the promises, from the original covenant with Abraham forward, that God will ultimately, ultimately reveal himself as the true God of the, all the world. The nations will acknowledge this and righteousness will prevail. There will be shalom. That is the ultimate telos, right? To which we are invited to, to, to join ourselves. The myth of progress is a counterfeit of that, that suggests something like having that on our own terms, right? It's the Tower of Babel version of heaven and earth coming together. And it's, it's, it functions as a counterfeit. It's seductive as a counterfeit because it's partly true, right? And, you know, like the, the original story, you know, in Eden about, um, you know, you will be gods, right? Just eat of this, right? And, and you will be gods. And the temptation there is to, well, to grasp at something that sounds a bit like theosis, but that was being had on, on prideful, self-centered terms rather than the terms, you know, of the ultimate story that, that we're part of. So in, in unpacking a lot of these, you know, stories and liturgies and, and, you know, the, the kind of cultural practices that are, are formative, we need to, to be mindful of the fact that in fact, a lot of what is being offered is close to the truth without being the truth, right? That that model and case study of, of the shopping mall uh, was so seductive to the pilgrims there because it was trading on beauty, right? It was trading on, on a vision of the good life where, where all seems right, all seems well and ordered with the world. Well, that, none of that is necessarily wrong. It's the terms on which it was being had, right? It was that... Um, as I say that the, the Tower of Babel, as opposed to the Temple of Heaven and Earth coming coming together, it's it's close enough to be seductive, close enough to to seemingly answer the deepest desires in our hearts, without actually being you know the, the real thing. So that's the thing about progress, um, writ large, is that it it comes close enough to the Christian narrative, the story of the kingdom of God, without actually being it, but enough that it is seductively coerced our, our desires for several hundred years now. Enacting the kingdom only exists because of an active community of people just like you over on Patreon. Esther writes, it all started when a very talented and active member of our parish sent out a link for the episode concerning fasting featuring the bright and pious authority Rita Madden. I had witnessed her wisdom before, so I tuned in, found the format of enacting the kingdom very appealing, and immediately became a patron. I have found all of the additional podcasts extremely beneficial, and have since evangelized a prominent member of our Orthodox community to do the same. Keep up the good work. Go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to join the growing community. One of the struggles we're going to come up against, Father Jeffrey, I feel in this season is the constant reminder that these things, you know, sports, health, you know, all these things, they're not inherently bad. Like there's nothing bad about playing football. There's nothing evil about trying to live a healthy life. Indeed, these can be very good and holy things, you know, so I think one of the things we're going to keep bumping up against is it's it's not that we're saying things are bad. It's that we're saying 
that when these when those stories supersede the story that we receive from the church, that's when things start to go wrong. Um, you know, and when I think, you know, you know, sports, entertain the only one here that I can see that might just be like really bad is consumerism. But there's nothing wrong with consuming, right? We're we are to eat, we are to drink. That's the central act of our liturgical worship is an act of consuming. Right? right. So consuming isn't bad, but maybe consumerism, you know, if you put the ism at the end, things tend to, you know, go, go a little awry. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, a, a proper Christian living the, the full story of God, living towards the telos of the kingdom is to some extent the very best kind of materialist. Right. And I'll use the, the ism in, in that regard, mm -hmm. um, but in, in a good way, because it puts material in its proper place to, to give the most kind of importance and value to material is to make it sacramental, right? Is to make it a participant in the, that, that wider, you know, story of God becoming all in all. It's, it's actually selling material things short by making them the goal, right? By, ma by, by making them the, the thing to enjoy in and of themselves. That's an ism that is, is pointless because it, it ultimately doesn't lead anywhere, you know, beyond that. I mean, this is ultimately very well expressed by um, early church father, St. Augustine, um, who in his um, On Christian Teaching um, is, d distinguishes between things and signs, right? And it, the, the problem with any one thing isn't the thing itself, it's how you use it, right? So if you take something and you use it as a sign, as a, a kind of step on, the, on a path towards the knowledge of God, participating in the life of God, then it, it ultimately becomes the fullest possible value that it, it can have, right? You're giving the most value to it. And that's, as I say, a kind of proper materialism where all material becomes charged with the life of God, spirit-filled and sacramental. And that's the, the liturgy of the church then spilling out into that liturgy of the world and what we've rehearsed becoming, you know, the reality. But if you take that same thing, exactly the same thing, and use it for its own self, kind of self-referential value, uh, a kind of value in and of itself, then it is materialism in a different sense and it's and you've stopped there and you've tried to find satisfaction to your desires to your ultimate loves in something that will ultimately be ephemeral and transient and passing away and and that's what we mean by this kind of counterfeit business of everything that is that is short of that life of God will ultimately be be a counterfeit and and it's the same thing as saying you know what idolatry is, right? It's choosing anything as that ultimate reference and, and, and focus of our worship and loves other than God himself, right? And so what Christians always and ever ought to be saying is not, oh, to be Christian, you need to turn away from the world. You need to, you need to stop using these things. Stop with that entertainment business, stop with that sports, you know, thing, stop shopping or eating or doing any of those things. No, the point is not that, 
a proper asceticism and a proper you know, use of things is to say, do all that in a way that makes God your ultimate point of worship and love and, and, and reference, right? And that will obviously transform the way you're doing it, right? I'm, not, I'm saying, you know, the person who consumes and shops and, and, and goes to, to enjoy sports or entertainment or art and literature and music and all of these different things will be doing that in a, in a different way from the one who makes those you know, his or her idol or gods or, or whatever, but it's still the same things, right? And it's almost, there's almost nothing off the table. It's just has to be redirected and, and made as Augustine would say into signs rather than things, right? Things that are, are used in our development of our relationship towards God and participation in the full life of God rather than used for their own, you know, own benefit. So, I mean, I, I would not want to shy away from Christians being materialist in that sense, right? But it's a, it's a, it's a higher order materialism than the materialism of, of the one who, who stops there, who makes that frame, you know, their only reference point. And uh, if we kind of get this right, we, it's actually a very attractive message, you know, for the world, because it's the fullest way of being a human being, right? It's not about, you know, well, to be spiritual, Christian is to stop being, you know, embodied human participating in this world, doing all these things that, that you seem to enjoy. No, it's doing them in a way that directs everything towards the life of God, where all those habits, rituals, practices, behaviors become the virtues that are directed towards the end of the story in God. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Yuri Gladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning, and I'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.